Welcome to the Keat Shelley podcast. My name is James Kidd, and this is another of our special episodes as part of 2021's Keat Shelley and Young Romantics prizes and also our Keat Shelley bicentenary. And our theme this year is Writ in Water, three words that are taken from John Keat's famous epitaph, Here Lies One Whose Name Was Writ in Water. It has been a week of anniversaries. On Tuesday, we marked the 200th anniversary of Keats' death. Today is another bicentenary of Keats' funeral on the 26th of February, 1821. And I'm very pleased to welcome Nicholas Stanley Price, who is an author of two books, A History of the 300 Years of the Non-Catholic Cemetery or the Protestant Cemetery. We may actually talk about what to call it in a few moments. And also, more recently, a book about the graves of Keats and Shelley. And I'm very lucky to be able to talk to him through the uh, miracles of modern technology. Nicholas is in Rome right now. Nicholas, are you there? Can you, can you hear me OK? Yes, I am here in Rome. And how are you today? It's been, I mean, it has, must have been an extraordinary week to, to be in Rome uh, on these, these auspicious me- and, and momentous dates. Yes, I'm very fortunate, well, fortunate to live in Rome, but I was also very fortunate a few days ago on Tuesday, uh, the actual commemoration of uh, 200 years of Keats's death, uh, to be present in a very small ceremony, uh, and very small because of the restrictions of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic uh, that took place uh, at his grave. And so on both counts, I count myself extremely lucky. Could you just tell us a little bit about it? We, we, for most of us, we... We saw it on inevitably through our through our computer screens. What was it like to be there in in person? We were fortunate that it was a lovely sunny day, and uh, it was mid morning. Uh, but we were very very few. Giuseppe Albano, the director of the Keats Shelley House here in Rome, who organised the event. Amanda Thursfield, the director of the non Catholic cemetery, a Protestant cemetery in Rome and a photographer and a journalist uh, and two members of the advisory committee of the cemetery. I was one of them. Uh, so we were eight or nine people. But of course, if we were not living through these difficult times of the pandemic, uh, we could have expected uh, many, many dozens of uh, admirers of Keats coming to be uh, at the grave on that important day. Did, did, did you feel a, a particular atmosphere to be there actually on, on that day? Yes, in a way diminished because there were so few people, but in other ways heightened uh, because you could feel alone with the the presence of the grave of Keats and the stone with that uh, touching inscription on it and then the flowers and wreaths that we laid uh, at the grave. In a more general sense, uh, the graves of both John Keats and Percy B. Shelley, uh, both in the cemetery, have acquired this strange sort of sacrosanct status, which was already evident in in the 19th century. Uh, And maybe I can talk a little more about that later. And in the 20th century too, they've always been seen as kind of sacred. And that's why we're allowed to use this terminology of pilgrims coming to visit the graves. And uh, there's a long, long tradition of pilgrims uh, bringing flowers to the graves, but also removing flowers Uh, This is historically attested also, people taking souvenirs away from the cemetery. So yes, uh, they're seen as as sacred places. When you first went to Rome, what did you know about uh, Keats and Shelley and and the graveyards? Was it it when you went there, was it a place in some ways of of pilgrimage or was it a part of your discovery of, of, of Rome itself? It was part of my discovery of Rome. I have to confess that like many, many people, I lived in Rome for a long time before I even went to the cemetery and and knew of it uh, as a place uh, worth visiting. And I didn't come from a particular background of uh, literature, so that, of course, Keats and Shelley were known to me, uh, and I'd read some of their work, but I didn't have that sort of motivation on arrival in Rome immediately to seek out their graves, which is what we do find in in other visitors nowadays. So, yes, I discovered it as, as, as part of exploring Rome. Do, do you remember your first, uh, your first encounter, your, your, your first visit? I think it came about as a result of my being contacted by the then director of the cemetery. Uh, now, this is going back quite a number of years. I was in Rome, having been appointed to the head of a 
intergovernmental organization dealing with conservation of cultural heritage. And one day, the director of the non-Catholic cemetery uh, came to see me and said, could we help as a specialized center of conservation with their particular problems of stone conservation in the cemetery? I said, well, of course, in principle, we can, though we have our own programs, which are all over the world. But talking further with him, it became clear that he had much larger problems to deal with than simply stone conservation. There were problems of uh, financial viability and management of the cemetery. And the organization, ICROM, which I was working for, offered to study the situation and to make recommendations how the uh, situation could be improved. This was a period, and I'm talking about 2005, when the cemetery came into the international headlines as being at risk uh, because of its management problems, because of financial problems, even with the risk of having to be closed. Anyway, to cut a long story short, we made recommendations about how the cemetery could survive, and which uh, recommendations were largely followed up. It's interesting because when you visit Rome, when you think about immortal poetry, and you're, you're, it's slightly disarming to hear that these things, in fact, are quite fragile, uh, can be under threat, that they're, you, you assume that the existence of, of, of Rome and all its antiquities will, will, will never be in, in question. It's, were you surprised to find that, that such a place was under threat, or is, or is that fairly common? The specific problems uh, of preservation of the cemetery stem from its double role, it is still an active working cemetery. It mm. is still used for burials uh, for those who qualify to be buried there. At the same time, it is one of the historic sites of Rome, less well known than the Roman Forum or the leading museums and so on. But it has become one of the best known sites to visit in Rome, off a little off the beaten track, the well-known mm. track. The challenge is to manage it still as a place of active burial with all due reverence and respect for those who uh, have the sad uh, experience of having to bury one of their family there, and at the same time accommodating the many, many thousands of visitors every year who wish to visit it as a cultural and historic site. And combining the two goals is, is what the great challenge is. We'll perhaps ret return to that um, a, a, little, a little later. Perhaps it's time to start at the, at the very beginning and, and I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about how the cemetery came to, to be in that area and perhaps a little bit just a background of, of that part of Rome for, for either for people who don't know it um, at all or, or, or don't know it very well. Sure, it's, um, the area is at the southern uh, side of Rome just inside the ancient walls of Rome which are very visible as you visit around Rome. They're very well preserved. And I emphasize that the cemetery is just inside the walls because an extraordinary number of people uh, visit it and then go home and write that the cemetery lies just outside the walls. <laughs> uh, it's very important that it is inside the walls. And these walls were the ones built in the late third century AD. And in the area of the cemetery, between the center of the city at the time that Keats was here, 1820, uh, and the walls themselves, it was open countryside, uh, huge open spaces of the city then, which were not lived in, and they were either cultivated, such as for vineyards, or as in the case of the area where the cemetery is, they were known as the meadows of the Roman people. It was open countryside, and so you had uh, shepherds with grazing sheep and browsing goats. It was public land, and there were also mulberry trees which were used for the silk industry. So a great big open space and public land and apart from the, the normal silence which prevailed in this area, the only thing that interrupted that was Romans who went to the inns on Monte Testaccio, this extraordinary hillock uh, very nearby, uh, entirely artificial hillock made up of uh, broken potsherds. And various inns were created on this hill in the 17th century. And so at certain times of year, Romans would flock to these inns and the atmosphere would become quite wild at times. But other than those few occasions, it was peaceful, silent, green, with a few uh, shepherds wandering around. Do we know about the actual origins of, of the cemetery, how it, how it began, and, and perhaps particularly this, 
uh, much debated occasionally on, on, on Twitter, um, it's whether it's non, non-Catholic, Protestant, uh, Akatholika, there's lots of different ways to describe it. Was there, is there a particular moment where the cemetery, we can trace the beginnings of the cemetery itself? Yes, uh, and um, I agree the name is, is a bit problematic, and let me explain a little okay. uh, why there is confusion over the name, given that it is still an active cemetery. It started as a cemetery for those who were not in the Catholic Church, people who had not been baptised in the Catholic Church. Specifically, it goes back to the early 18th century, when there arrived in Rome uh, members of the Stuart Court in exile from Britain. They had already spent many years in France. The court had then recently moved to Urbino in the north of Italy. And finally, in 1719, it came to Rome. Now, a number of the members of the court from noble families in mainly Scotland uh, were not, in fact, Catholic by religion. They were Presbyterian, Uh Protestant. And if they died in Rome, they were not allowed to be buried in any Catholic consecrated ground. Where could they be buried? Well, there was an area outside the north gate of Rome, uh, along the Muro Torto, which was a cemetery for those who were not qualified to be buried in Catholic consecrated ground, either because they were not Catholic or because they were excommunicated for one reason or another. They might have been suicides, they might have been prostitutes, they might have been criminals. And so there was this separate burial ground for foreigners. In 1716, i.e. three years before the court itself arrived, there was a Presbyterian in Scotland called William Arthur, uh, who was a Jacobite, and he fled to Rome after a plot had failed in Edinburgh, and he died very soon after his arrival in Rome, having eaten a surfeit of figs, so they said, uh, and as, as a result of a particular request to the, to the Pope, to one of the cardinals, they were allocated this space in front of this large monument in that area, the Pyramid of Gaius Cestius, where they could bury him. And so that was the first of the burials that we know of in 1716. And after the court arrived three years later, any non-Catholic member of the court who died was also buried there. And almost immediately, others such as young people on the Grand Tour who died in Rome were also buried there. So it was the Protestant cemetery from the start. It was often called in those days the English cemetery. For a long time, most of the people buried there were British. Coming up to today, because you don't have to be Protestant to be buried there, you can be any num- one of any number of other faiths. Uh, the current preference is to call it the non-Catholic cemetery for foreigners in Rome. And that is the preferred name nowadays. Does that... Back history, Jack- Jacobites, young people on, on, on grand tours, does it give it a, a, the place a particular flavour? Perhaps when I think because of Keats and Shelley, it has a slightly radical, bohemian, sh- chic, there's a slight hint of, of banishment, um, of exile, obviously. But... Well, uh, in a sense, yes. Uh, to many of the Italians of the period, it was known as the Cemetery of the Heretics. <laughs> because they were viewed as heretics, as being outside the the Catholic Church. So entirely suitable, but also inevitable, if they were to be buried in Rome, uh, that Keats and Shelley would end up there. You describing this sense of open countryside, of periodic revelry. I just recently watched the, the film of Anthony Burgess visiting the cemetery in, I think it's 1978, in a documentary he made. And he talks about there's also a certain kind of danger in the in the area that there's uh, occasional uh, visits from from bandits and, and and that that sense of an open countryside of people I, I know who lurked on on the road from say Naples to to Rome was that present uh, too around the time that, that Keats and Seven were there I'm not sure Burgess what Burgess was particularly <laughs> referring to but yes the road between Naples and Rome was was notorious uh, for the presence of bandits and all travellers uh, had to be prepared for the possibility that bandits might uh, attack their coach as they travelled. Once inside Rome, I don't think that same okay. danger was evident. In terms of the peace being disturbed in the area of Testaccio, there are one or two accounts of, and we're talking about the 18th century now, but even before Keats was, was in Rome, 
uh, of these revelers uh, having had plenty to drink spilling out over the meadows and even going as far as the place where the Protestants buried their dead and occasionally um, vandalizing the gravestones. I don't think with any particular intention because they were viewed as heretics, simply because they were looking to have a bit of a lark. Was it a very beautiful place? Certainly some of the, the, the more romantic myths that come through about Keats and Seven's attraction to it suggest it was had a certain kind of beauty. Yes, definitely. Um, and we can see that in the number of artists' views of it that were made over the years, many of which are absolutely stunning. Um, I mentioned this uh, nearby hill, Monte Testaccio, and a number of artists would climb up the hill in order to take a view of this pyramid, which is a very unusual monument uh, for Rome, in the distance, when, of course, the Protestant cemetery and its tombs was visible at the foot of the pyramid. And so you get these wonderful views looking across the meadows of the Rome people to the cemetery, to the pyramid, and then beyond the pyramid outside the walls, you had the Roman Campania extending away into the distance. So yes, it, it appealed hugely to artists, either these distant views or even much closer up views, which show the tombs in the cemetery itself. I felt I had to add when you were asking that question, <laughs> it is very beautiful. Uh, and so many comments, you only have to look at TripAdvisor or any other similar website, so many comments by visitors uh, just say how beautiful the place is. Could, could you tell us a little bit about the, the pyramid? It's, it's obviously a, one of the, the, the more striking and, and, and memorable parts of any, any visit to, to, to the, the cemetery and, and, and quite a handy uh, indicator that, that you're, you're approaching it. It is a remarkable monument. It's a monumental tomb. It was the monumental tomb of a rich Roman called Gaius Cestius. He reached a fairly high position. He reached the position of praetor, which is one below consul. He was obviously rich in being able to afford to have a monument of this scale constructed uh, as his funerary monument. Uh, what is odd is that he is hardly mentioned at all in any of the contemporary sources or in any other inscriptions, so we know relatively little about him. But it's one of a series of monumental tombs that were built on one of the leading roads going out of Rome, uh, the tomb of Cecilia Metella on the Appia, on the Via Appia is another example. And it was then outside uh, the walls of Rome, and it was only when the current walls of Rome built in the late third century were built, that they incorporated the pyramid in the walls in order to save themselves a certain amount of work. It dates from, it's indirectly dated uh, between 18 and 12 BC. Uh, there are inscriptions on it saying that uh, Chester's ordered that it should be completed in less than 330 days. And it's been extremely influential, uh, especially for artists and architects, people on the Grand Tour, Many of them visited the pyramid, and sometimes, by chance, they found the cemetery as well. Uh, and it was hugely influential for those architects, such as William Kent or Robert Adam, yeah. who incorporated the signs of pyramids uh, in their work when they went back to Britain. Keats, obviously, when he turned up in Rome and, and arrived in Rome in November of 1820, I think was 99.9% sure that, that he would die in, in Rome. I don't know off the top of my head if, if Keats made any inquiries about his death and, and the arrangements for his death should he die, die in Rome. Have you found any evidence that he found out about the Protestant cemetery before, before he arrived? I don't know about before he arrived, but once he was in Rome... Uh, there is this reference to one day when he's lying in bed in Casa di Spagna, already very ill, and as you say, terminally ill. He asked Joseph Seven, who was looking after him, uh, to go and visit the English cemetery, because he had heard about it and he wished to know about it. And Seven comes back and reports that it's the most beautiful place, covered with daisies and violets, and apparently Keith said, I want you to go back and have another look too. And so, yes, he knew about it, and we happen to know that violets were Keats's favorite flower. And uh, in fact, at this season of year, uh, 
as I saw just the other day, the whole of the grass there is covered mm. uh, in white daisies and uh, the less visible, but they're there, violets uh, amongst, the, amongst the daisies on the grass. No, it's, it's, it's the 200 years ago today that, that Keats would have been buried. C could you tell us a, a little about, a, about what we know about that day and what might have, what might have happened? Sure. Uh, we know remarkably little. Obviously, he, was, he died in uh, the house at Piazza di Spagna. His body would have been carried in a carriage, which would have gone down the Via del Corso, and then on the road that goes down towards the church of um, Santa Maria in Cosmedin, uh, the Bocca della Verità. This is the famous church, uh, much uh, visited by tourists nowadays who want to test the, um, the Bocca della Verità uh, by putting their hands in, uh, in its mouth. In, oh, yeah. of anyway, we know that that was the point at which in the 18th century carriages would assemble and at that point, they would then be escorted all the way down to the uh, cemetery uh, by guards. This was no longer the case by the time Keats was, was, was buried. And so they went down along the river Tiber and then down via Marmorata, which was this long straight road between the bank of the Tiber and the gate in the wall, the Porta San Paolo, um, called Marmorata because marble was uh, imported uh, up the river and offloaded there and they would have arrived then going into the entrance to the area of uh, Testaccio uh, and headed across the meadows towards the pyramid and the carriage would have gone all the way up to the uh, the place of burial because there was no wall or anything uh, impeding it as to how many people took part in the funeral we know again very little and the sources are not entirely consistent but uh, unfortunately, a bit like our commemoration last Tuesday, I think there were probably less than 10 people present. Okay. We know that, of course, Joseph Seven was present, Dr. Clark, the doctor, and possibly one other doctor with him, the Reverend Wolf, who was the chaplain, uh, and then a few artist friends of Keats, uh, an architect, Ambrose Pointer, possibly another, Henry Park, a couple of sculptors, uh, Richard Westmacott, William Ewing, but very few, those we, I think are almost all the names of the people we know were present. And unlike the cemeteries, uh, these occasions, the funerals that took place in the 18th century, uh, the funeral did not play, take place at night. We know that it took place about nine o'clock in the morning. And the custom of holding funerals always at night, which was prevalent in the uh, 18th century, had obviously ceased. It's often been said too that uh, poor Keats was buried in a cemetery outside the walls, which it was not, it was inside, and buried at night. Uh, well, all funerals took place at night. Catholic, Jewish, Protestant funerals all took place at night. There was no nothing discriminatory uh, against the Protestants in this respect. And how long would the, the actual service have, have lasted? Do we have any, any, any sense of that? There's nothing, nothing, as far as I know, there's nothing recorded about that at all. Uh, I just have no idea, but I imagine fairly brief. It's been pointed out that uh, his death and burial coincided with the celebration of Carnival in mm. Rome at that point. And there might have been restrictions in terms of moving around the city, a preference for holding it early in the morning. Uh, I don't know, but extraordinarily little is known about that. I suppose that's that's one of the problems that we that we have that this, the main source who would have been Joseph Seven. I think by this point was emotionally, physically, absolutely cl close to to breakdown. I think he he offers only I think about a sentence about the the funeral at the time and just says I we we walked with with many English I think. But um, I know he'd met Gibson by then, but I don't think he 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 was there. Tom Gibson was not there. Yeah. Mm. He was there, he, but he was not, uh, as far as we know, at the funeral. Though other people uh, who you'd think might have been there, uh, there was a Lord Colchester who had mm. met Joseph Seven not long before mm. and must have known why Seven was in Rome. He was not there. And interestingly, the young Spanish painter, Valentin Llanos, uh, had visited Keats's deathbed only three days before he died. 
And he was the man, of course, who married Keats's sister about 10 years later. And for some reason, he was not, not allowed about uh, what exactly happened in, at the funeral. You suddenly realise again, a little bit like you were saying, but the fragility sometimes of the cemetery, the fragility of our knowledge of, of things. We need You need someone to write something down so that we, we, we have some records. But I suppose it's, it may be a, a reflection of what a, a sad event it was that the that people just wanted to almost forget about it. Perhaps Seven particularly wanted to t turn away and, 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 and deal with this in his own pr private way rather than necessarily describing it. Uh, yeah, I, I would um, slightly diverge then that uh, he didn't make a written record of what mm -hmm. had happened. He had no hesitation at all during the following decades of his life in talking about his friendship with Keats. Mm. Uh, and there are many, many accounts of him telling these stories about his knowledge of Keats and what he went through during those last days. Mm. People have said maybe a little unkindly that his stories got taller and taller uh, <laughs> as his life went on. Uh, so he certainly spoke a lot about Keats. Mm. Uh, and our, our tragedy is that he never wrote down uh, a detailed account of the events at the time. Do we have a sense of what the, the burial plot, uh, the grave, looked like? In, in 1821. Very different, because all those who visit it nowadays uh, enter the old part of the cemetery and they walk to the very far corner. And there is the grave of John Keats, along with the grave of Joseph Severn, who mm -hmm. eventually was buried next to him, in a kind of corner. There are high walls on two sides. And that has sometimes led other writers to contribute to this picture of Keats being buried at night outside the city, mm. which wasn't, and his grave stuck away in a corner. Well, in 1821, it was not a corner. There were no walls then, apart from one along the, the main road. It was open countryside, and his gravestone, when it was finally erected, because it took more than two years before the gravestone was put up, uh, stood out in the countryside, and for anybody arriving from the center of Rome, traveling out there towards the cemetery, as they arrived at the cemetery, his was the first gravestone you saw, and it stood on its own. It was not even in a row with other gravestones. So I would say, rather contrary to how it has been often described in the past, it actually had a quite prominent position. Very soon after Keats's death, uh, only about 18 months later, this old cemetery was actually closed for further burials. And the new cemetery was opened alongside. And in fact, Percy B. Shelley is buried in the new cemetery. He was mm -hmm. the third person to be buried there in very different uh, setting. And then to protect the old cemetery, it was surrounded by a very deep moat, a sort of walled moat. And this kept out the sheep and the goats and so on, but it, it kept out also visitors unless they were allowed to enter through the one gate uh, very near to Keats's grave. And a number of visitors during the 1820s, 30s, 40s say that once you enter the old cemetery through this gate, the grave of Keats is the first one you see. So it was very prominent and evident, but in a situation very, very different to what you see nowadays. And without a, a gravestone, how would, how would the grave have been identified what would have been there to, to, to mark out the grave? Do, do we have any, any sense of that? There would have been the burial mound, uh, and there may have been a small wooden cross, very, very low-profile wooden cross. Some of the early burials were marked with a wooden cross, and many of the early burials never had a gravestone. Um, and that's another aspect of the cemetery as we see it nowadays, there are about 60 gravestones from the time that it started until it was closed in 1822. But at least that number, again, of people were buried and never received gravestone at all. Oh. So at the time of Keats's burial, there would have been about uh, 60 gravestones of different kinds, some of them upstanding, but others just uh, low uh, ledger stones in the grass and not even necessarily very visible. Does the closure of, of the cemetery, does that explain, is that part of the reason that there is this two and a bit year uh, gap before the, 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 the headstone is erected? I know it's 
partly the result of uh, disagreements and debates amongst Keats's uh, friends, particularly Seven and Brown and, and Taylor to some extent. But the closure, w- w- would that have played a part too? Um, it was caught up in those events, but I think the delay in erecting the, the headstone uh, was, as you say, due to the continuing um, discussions between Seven and Brown back in England as to what was the wording to be put on the stone, what inscription, what epitaph to use. That said, uh, Seven too was notorious for being very slow in coming to decisions about things uh, and may not have pushed it forward quite as fast as he might have done. Choosing a sculptor too, John Gibson had already arrived in Rome for a couple of years. He'd started his career, well known. He may or may not have been invited, uh, but anyway, he didn't end up designing the stone. Uh, And in the end, uh, Seven gave it to Joseph Gott, recently arrived in Rome, young, young sculptor, and he then became ill for six months and was unable to work. So there were various delays, and it was only in June 1823 that finally Keats had a headstone. Would you like to talk a little bit at this point just about what happens next yes well um the grave of keats uh, and indeed of shelley they both become visited and of course we depend on people having made written accounts Uh, there may have been a lot going on that was never written down but people have written accounts of visiting the two graves already in the 1820s and then more in the 1830s uh, english in particular some americans and then uh with the rise of tourism and especially the publication of the Murray Handbook to Rome in 1843. That was the first edition. And this is the little red book that you often see uh, visitors depicted as carrying as they walk around Rome. It mentions the cemetery and it mentions the graves of various people buried there, including those of Keats and Shelley. And that must have stimulated many visitors to Rome who'd been mainly thinking of visiting the Roman Forum, the Vatican Museums and so on. Uh, They may have been stimulated to search this out as a place of some curiosity. So this develops, and during the 19th century, you have many, many people writing about their experience of searching out the graves of Keats and Shelley in the two cemeteries, the old one and the new one. Are there particular one, particular visits that, that leap off the page for, for, for you? Yes, I, I was going to mention some of the sure. uh, famous authors who yeah. visited uh, during the 19th century. Charles Dickens, John Ruskin, uh, the two Brownings, uh, Herman Melville, Oscar Wilde. Uh, one who did not, interestingly, is Walter Scott, who finally got to Italy when already an old and, and not very healthy man. Apparently, on one of his tours around Rome in the carriage, they did stop at the gate to the cemetery, but he, he didn't feel up to going inside. But several of these authors, uh, such as George Eliot, who called it the most attractive burying place she had seen, and was deeply touched by Shelley's grave, one of the quietest spots of old Rome. She was obviously very moved by the place. And Henry James, too, talking about Shelley's grave, not about Keats's, but Shelley's grave. Uh, and he writes, the cemetery nestles in an angle of the city wall, and the older graves are sheltered by a mass of ancient brickwork, through whose narrow loopholes you peep at the wild purple of the Campania. Shelley's grave is here, buried in roses, a happy grave every way for the very type and figure of the poet. Nothing could be more impenetrably tranquil than this little corner in the bend of the protecting rampart, where a cluster of modern ashes is held tenderly in the rugged hand of the past. Quite moving, I think, and and Henry James was uh, a visitor over the years to the cemetery uh, and especially in the 1890s, after his friend Constance Fenimore Wilson, the writer, died, he again was very moved by visiting her grave. So it became a kind of place of pilgrimage for, for visitors to Rome. A lot of the responses to the, to the place are inc- incredibly positive. And one of the most famous, and as I think I said earlier, perhaps in, infamous visits, which is Os- Oscar Wilde's, where he prostrates himself before the headstone on the actual uh, place where Keats is buried. The one thing that's quite noticeable about Wilde's account of the place is uh, his, I think, mild sense of anticlimax. He says, 
this time-worn stone and these wild flowers, which are but poor memorials of one so great as Keats, all the more so in a city like Rome, which pays such honour to her dead. But it's, it's an interesting th thought about how the cemetery, it's, it's rather sort of understated, perhaps, um, atmosphere compares to some of the more grand memorials elsewhere in Rome, including perhaps to the, to the pyramid. Do you think that's perhaps part of its actual charms? I think I think eventually Wilde re realizes that um, its modesty is perhaps its 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 very power. It's certainly uh, an essential part of the explanation of the appeal of the Protestant cemetery, the non-Catholic cemetery, that the monuments are low profile. They're not the large monuments that you often find in Catholic cemeteries, and this is deliberate because. Uh, after all, during greater part of its life, uh, it has been a minority religion in this uh, city, the centre of uh, Catholicism, and the Protestants kept a lowish profile. All the time during the 19th century, every application to make a burial had to be approved uh, by the city authorities, and the inscription to be put on the gravestone had to be submitted in the original language and in Italian for approval by the authorities. So there was always this sort of control over what could go on in the Protestant cemetery and what sort of uh, statements of religion could be mentioned. For instance, uh, the Protestants were not allowed to make any reference to life after death and the resurrection mm. in the epitaphs on the uh, monuments. So there was always this atmosphere of keeping a low profile, which was only wise in a predominantly Catholic city. So whether Wilde and others were disappointed, I don't know, but <laughs> they, would, they would have been familiar with cemeteries back home and they would have found the Protestant cemetery really comparable in lots of ways with the kind of rural cemetery or urban cemetery back in, back in Britain or, or Ireland. Do, do we have a sense of when people were perhaps coming almost to Rome in order to see the, the grave. Is there a moment where the, 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 the cemetery, in particular the graves of, of Keats and Shelley, become, I suppose, for want of a better word, famous? Is there, is there a turning point? I'm not aware of one. Um, I, I couldn't pin a certain uh, date on when a visit to the cemetery became the main motivation for coming to Rome. That is true nowadays, uh, just from talking to the huge variety of visitors who come to the cemetery from all over the world. Uh, the ones who say, I, first thing I want to do in Rome is to come and see the grave of Keats or the grave of Shelley. And they may be people from uh, Japan or Taiwan or wherever, way outside the, um, the European North American uh, world. We, we talked, we've talked a little bit about the idea of preservation, con conservation, the, the, the threats to, to, the, to the grave. I, I was curious, I've done a little bit of reading about Rome in, in the Second World War and, and particularly the, some of the, actually the dangers I think that surrounded the, the house itself, that it was perhaps not always the safest place to have a, 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 a memorial to, a, to an, an English poet. And I think on the day of that Rome was liberated, uh, soldiers was, were particularly posted outside the the, the, the house at 26 Piazza di Spagna. Was there any sense of threat during the war to, to, the, uh, to the Protestant cemetery? Uh, well, they were bombed. Okay. <laughs> just before I talk about the Second World War, uh, let me just recall the fact that in the 1880s, after Rome has become the capital city of Italy, uh, there was a serious proposal to demolish the old cemetery with all the graves in it. This hasn't received a great deal of attention in literature about Keats, but mm. we could have had no uh, grave of Keats left at all to commemorate uh, 200 years later. This was because of the uh, development of the city and huge pressures for expanding the uh, city, improving transport networks and so on. And probably people in the central planning offices who were not aware of the cemetery simply uh, drove a road on paper uh, right through the old cemetery, destroying everything. And fortunately, as a result of very high level intervention, I'm talking about Queen Victoria and uh, Kaiser Wilhelm and Bismarck, 
The Second World War, the cemetery had three bombs that fell on it, what would be called uh, collateral damage. The Allies were bombing the railway station just to the south of the walls at Ostiense. These must have been bombs that fell by, by mistake. And amazingly, it did not hit the pyramid of Gaius Cestius, mm. nor the great gate in the wall, the Porta San Paolo, but fell on the Protestant cemetery. And they caused damage to quite a lot of tombs, but not, fortunately, to the grave of Keats. But it could have happened otherwise, and we might again be um, celebrating in a rather different way today. One of the interesting facts about the, the grave is that the grave that we see today is not, not the grave exactly that, that would have been seen uh, by many of the, 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 the notable writers that, that you mentioned, that it, that it did have to be restored. I'm assuming that actually at some point that the words were actually engraved on the tomb, because I th I've read somewhere that they were later um, leaded, leaded, so I, whether, whether at some point they were in fact engraved as, as the, the epitaph um, and the inscription says. But it did have to, the, the gravestone did in fact suffer through, I guess, erosion and the, the natural uh, wearing away of, of, of solid materials. Is it in the 1870s, there's a, a move to try and restore and preserve the grave. Yes, uh, it's not as major as, as it sounds. Several people have been concerned about the state of the grave. And let's remember, it's in a cemetery which was no longer being used. A lot of visitors during the 19th century uh, call it completely neglected. And one of the contributing reasons was the growth of grass. Because once it was enclosed by this moat and the sheep and goats were excluded, the grass grew, whereas previously the sheep and goat kept it nicely shorn. And so people would arrive and gaze at the grave across this great uh, moat and say, well, it's neglected. Various people during the 19th century said, we must do something, we must uh, control the grass, we must plant some more plants around the grave and we must also make the inscription more visible. It was originally incised. It was incised again to make the letters more visible. And then in 1870s, 1875, as you say, uh, there was a bigger project financed by a benefactor in England to restore the stone, but only in the sense that it was raised about 30 centimeters on a new base. And instead of leaving the inscription engraved, it was filled with leaded letters which are much more durable. And they planted new plants around the grave and a pine tree behind. So it, so it was a restoration project, but the gravestone itself has not changed hugely from when it was set up. I think it, it feels very Keatsian in a way. It feels uh, like the Ode on a Grecian Urn sort of writ, writ large. I've often f f felt that visiting the, the grave... Uh, it's both a, a memorial to this incredibly short life that's in fact had a much longer life than the mortal remains that, that, that we're sta standing before. But at the same time, you do have the sense of this memorial that is subject uh, to the weather, to changes in, in, in the city, its, its environment. And is, I know is perhaps uh, foremost on, on, on your mind and your own uh, connection with, with the cemetery and the, ch the challenges of maintaining th this extraordinary place in the late 20th and now in, in the 20, 21st centuries. What, what, what are the challenges that, that the cemetery ha has faced? I think I mentioned earlier that it is still an active cemetery and first and foremost it is there for those who have graves there, uh, who want to visit the graves and they have the right to find a peaceful reverential atmosphere they are the priority uh, people for whom the cemetery is, is there. At the same time, it attracts tens of thousands of visitors every year. And in addition to those people who are coming there as part of their visit to Rome, there are many people who live in Rome, including many Romans who live around the area in Testaccio, who just drop in there, for instance, on a Saturday morning and sit in the sunshine reading the paper, at least in the days when people still read papers. <laughs> Uh, now they look at their phones. The challenge of managing the place is to reconcile those two needs. We're living through a stage where this has been very successfully achieved, 
ever since 2007 when the position of director of the cemetery was advertised for the first time in 280 years. And the current director, Amanda Thursfield, has achieved this uh, remarkably in reconciling those two uh, needs of different audiences. The key questions are answered in a way, but that, that does not avoid the continuing challenges of conservation of stone in an increasingly polluted atmosphere of Rome. Uh, the gravestones tend to blacken, inscriptions become illegible, and so there's a program of continuing maintenance or even more radical restoration of gravestones. But also it's a cemetery which is full of trees, tall pine trees, tall cypress trees, all at risk uh, in the storms that we have in Rome. And so managing the trees and also the ecological values of the place, of the, the wildlife and so on, is an important part of management too. And that has become much more complicated uh, as the cemetery has grown. There are now you know, 5,000 tombs there, far more than the days when Keats and Shelley were there. And so it's a problem which is not unique to Rome. It's found in many cemeteries and similar sites all over the world. What is the status for for native Romans of the cemetery? Is it, is it, is it a place they look on fondly or perhaps as, a, as another part of the, the slightly sort of strange invasion of tourists from around the world, uh, when there were still tourists uh, travelling around the world? Uh, there are various ways uh, to answer that. First, many Romans have visited the cemetery in the past because of their love of Pete's and Trelli. Mm. And uh, I've been astonished that particularly in the late 19th century, how many uh, Romans were writing uh, about Keats and Shelley and about their experience of visiting their grave. And that has continued even during the 20th century too. So we mustn't forget that Keats and Shelley are also part of uh, the literary heritage that the Italians enjoy too. As I say, many local residents, Roman residents, frequently come in there, particularly at weekends, but not only, because they know it is a peaceful, quiet, green place in which they can sit and, and contemplate. I think that has increased over the last 15 years or so as a result of them being made to feel welcome. And many, many Romans, you talk to them when they arrive and they say, I've heard about this place for 50 years and I never came here. And now I'm so glad that I did. Uh, in terms of the ultimate purpose of the cemetery to provide a respectful resting place for those who have died and for those who wish to come and mourn them. Well, we're living in unusual times at the moment. Mm. The cemetery has now been closed. It was closed in the first lockdown. It has now been closed again since the 4th of November last year, but it is open to those who have graves there. And four days a week, they can come and visit. And in a strange sort of way, it's almost reverted uh, the use of the cemetery has reverted to its principal and primary use as a place for these people to come and visit in an atmosphere of complete peace and quiet, because there are no other tourists, uh, the graves of their uh, family who've passed. Compared with these huge controversies of unlimited tourism, and it's on a much smaller scale, but it also makes it easier to manage as long as you get the priorities right and treat all your different audiences uh, in the best possible way. I guess that COVID has, has changed uh, everything. You couldn't have imagined this uh, just over, over a year ago. But what are the, what are the, the challenges and, and also your hopes for the cemetery in, 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 the, in the immediate future? Obviously, we all hope that we're going to get back to a, a new normal of some kind. As I say, the cemetery at the moment is closed uh, for visitors, but uh, open for those who have graves there. And we would hope, when I say we, I, I should explain, I, I'm a member of the advisory committee, which works very closely with the director, uh, though it's the director who, who decides in the end uh, what policies to pursue. Um, we hope that there'll be a phased reopening uh, for visitors as soon as possible. That depends on national policies in Italy uh, as to lockdowns and restrictions and freedom of movement and so on. The current model, if you like, for managing the place is very successful and has worked very well. And you only have to look at comments on sites like uh, Facebook and TripAdvisor and so on to see how thrilled people are 
uh, when they visit the, the cemetery. And obviously the, the cemetery as an active place of burial must continue too, which requires a lot of finesse because the amount of space is extremely limited. But it can be done and has been done. What kind of support can, can perhaps people listening to this um, offer? I know the Keith Shelley House and, and, and the organisation, the Keith Shelley Memorial Association, are obviously involved in, in looking after the, the, the graves of, of Keats and Shelley. But Well, we, we haven't really talked about money, but it's hard to avoid money in the end. <laughs> like so many such sites, we have a Friends Association. People could help us very much by becoming a friend, and that helps finance particularly uh, conservation of graves and the control and management of the trees in the cemetery. Uh, which is quite an expensive item in, in the budget. Uh, as I should mention, the Friends have a quarterly newsletter, which is full of uh, news, both about what's going on in the cemetery, but also about the people who are buried there, who they were, and so on. But we also publish books about the cemetery, which deliberately we only sell on the spot in our visitor centre or through our website. And we do that so that 100% of the proceeds go to the benefit of the cemetery, so people can help by um, doing either one of those or both of those things, becoming a friend or buying our publications. Well, we'll put all the links um, below this uh, podcast. But what I would like to say most of all to you, Nicholas, is thank you very much for, for giving us your, your time and being part of this extraordinary work to, to maintain not just the, the graves of, of John Keats and, and Percy Shelley, but um, everyone there, Trelawney, Seven, and of course all, all, all those... Um, many other ones for, both for this generation and, and many more to come but thank you very much indeed uh, it's my been my pleasure talking to you thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by the keat shelley house and the keat shelley memorial association you can find out more about the Keats Shelley House, including our history, collections, and Keats Shelley 200 Bicentenary at ksh.roma.it. For news about 2021's Keats Shelley and Young Romantics Poetry and Essay Prizes, visit keatshelley.org and click Prizes. To support the museum by becoming a friend or making a donation, stay at keatshelley.org and click Support Us. This episode was written and presented by James Kidd, the music is Androids Always Escape by Chris Zabriskie. Visit chriszabriskie.com. <laughs>